Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to episode 38 of the Partly Political Broadcast. I'm Tiernan Dunyab and it's been officially announced that we are the parallel universe of another Earth where right now they're watching a dystopian sci-fi film about our 2016 and thinking thank fuck we aren't so shitty to let that happen while they enjoy eating popcorn with real butter in it because in their world the cinemas are so great that they do that. So, if you, like me, aren't a white supremacist, the news this past week has been pretty bleak. If you are a white supremacist, what do you do with all the pillows from inside the cases? Really bothers me. Anyway, while I want this show to be about the past week's politics, I've been feeling pretty miserable looking at the news or social media, so I thought to cheer up this week's podcast, I'd make some very happy jingles to keep you all feeling positive about the future. Hey there, it'll all be okay. We're all going to die one day anyway. Hey there, I know that last week blowed, but in five billion years, the sun will explode. <laughs> Feel better? No? Oh. Well, it's only been six days since the world's biggest setup turned out to have the sort of unfunny punchline that makes people wretch and complain to Ofcom. And already we have some ideas about what the Trump presidency will be like. And by that, I mean it'll be a combination of a half-assed mess and politics that have shifted so far to the right that the White House might be sitting in the Atlantic. Which may actually be a literal possibility in a few years anyway, based on Trump appointing climate change denier Myron Ebel to head up the US Environmental Protection Agency. Ebel thinks that a plan for the US to reduce carbon emissions is illegal, wants to find the quickest way to reject the Paris Agreement, and thinks global warming is a hoax, because that Arctic ice is such a prankster, right? I mean, I'm sure it's only time before the last few starving polar bears stack up ice cubes that when they start to melt read, y'all got punked. I mean, the plus of all this is that if we are wiped out due to Myron idiocy, it will be known as the Ebel End. If anyone's around to record it, that is, of course. 2016 is definitely not said to be the warmest year on record due to too much empathy and hospitality, is it? But unsurprisingly, this isn't the worst person to be appointed to a position of power by Trump, as he announced that Stephen Bannon would be his chief strategist and senior counsellor. 
Bannon is the executive chairman of Breitbart News, a website that could be replaced with a gif of a Nazi motif-covered spoon stirring a vat full of far-right shit. The website has strong connections with the alt-right, a group of young angry white men who are still so upset that their mums once caught them wanking to cartoons and as a result want to emulate the politics of fascism. Stephen Bannon was the 400th person in charge of Trump's presidential campaign, taking the role from August, and he is widely regarded as an anti-Semitic, racist white nationalist, mainly because all evidence shows that he is one. For example, he compared Planned Parenthood to the Holocaust, because providing reproductive health services is exactly like genocide. He accused Obama of importing more hating Muslims, and said that women who are victims of online harassment should log off and stop screwing up the internet for men, because Stephen Bannon would like a men-only internet with places where he can chat to and engage with only men, look at pictures of plates of men, and endlessly watch videos of men doing things. So yes, all very worrying indeed. Chief of Staff for Trump will be Reince Priebus, a man whose name makes him sound like something you go to the hospital to get lanced, and who is, all in all, a fairly standard Republican. Which, no, isn't a good thing, but compared to Bannon, maybe. At the time of recording this, no more announcements have been made, but it does look like Newt Gingrich will be Secretary of State, which is great news for anyone who wants a moon base, but not for anyone who likes human rights. And Newt has already stated that he'd like to bring back the Un-American Activities Committee. If you've heard that name before, it's because it's the investigative committee that dealt with communist and anti-American propaganda during the McCarthy era, blacklisting and imprisoning people who were supposedly doing things to demean American values. Gingrich now says he wants it to look into Muslim groups and activities, but on the plus side, if it goes back to its earliest roots of seeking out Nazi spies and fascism, he may lock up Trump's senior counsellor Stephen Bannon within weeks. Oh, and obviously Mike Pence is in charge of the whole transition, because no one's better at helping everyone smoothly acclimatise to change than someone who's wanted rights for women and ethnic minorities to stay the same since the 1950s. And so far, Trump's team really works with his motto of draining the swamp, as he said, by getting rid of Washington political elites and replacing them with Washington political elites, Wall Street millionaires and his own children. It's almost as if he only wanted to drain the swamp in order to use the land to build a luxury elitist hotel on. As well as going back on that campaign promise, Trump has also said he'll probably keep bits of Obamacare and that the wall between the US and Mexico that he wants to build might now be part fence, despite him tweeting in August last year that it was a wall, not a fence, and that there's a big difference. Actually, Donald, both are similarly pointless and awful, and the only difference is you can't sit on a wall until you wait for mobs on the internet to help decide your policies. There are tons of other worrying comments he's made on deporting 3 million immigrants, something that isn't legally possible or physically easy to do, and allowing concealed weapons licenses to apply in all states because what you really want in this calm, collected atmosphere of increased racist attacks is to allow anyone to drive across America with all of their handguns, right? On the plus side, it does mean that Trump's probably just increasing his own assassination attempts at the same time, so fingers crossed everyone. Donald Trump has said that Facebook and Twitter helped him win, which is a shock to anyone who hasn't used either of those, and over his campaign he used and quoted fake news stories to gain ground against Hillary Clinton. In interviews, Trump defended himself by saying how was he to know that they were fake stories when he saw them online or heard them on the radio, and this does make me wonder if there is some hope if we all just post tons and tons of fake articles with very lovely things that immigrants or Mexicans have done for the economy and rednecks, and how guns are poisonous to touch, and hopefully it'll only be days before Donald Trump changes his mind again.
Right, so this is a fairly Trump-heavy episode, I'm afraid, and it is incredible that we've got to a point so despairing that I can say that without laughing or making a joke about how that's because I've just had onion soup. So a little bit more on the US maelstrom to come from me, plus the interview on today's show is with American comedian, podcast and political commentator Ben Kissel, whose work I am a very, very big fan of. Uh, He had a lot to say, as you can imagine, so it is a longer show than normal, as I didn't want to cut any of it out. Um, Also, I'll be looking at Virgin Care's NHS takeover as well. Um, thanks tons for continuing to listen and to all the new listeners that joined last week welcome uh, you might notice that I am whispering a little bit and that is because I am in a Travelodge hotel in Manchester after doing a gig for the People's Assembly which was very lovely and oh, check the glamour of my lifestyle um, I hope you all didn't mind the immediate mini episode on the US election results last week it just felt very very necessary to do uh, it was either that or I would just explode at home and then somebody would have to hoover that up which no one wants to do post those election results what a time to be alive eh well while it all seems a tad pointless in the scheme of things if you would like to review this show on iTunes and haven't please do and similarly if you'd like to give me a donation on our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash bro that'd be hugely helpful I'll be putting my set from the big gig uh, I did for help refugees last week up on the Patreon soon for people who donate only so if you'd like that do donate um, incidentally it was a really really lovely night with amazing acts and we raised a shit ton of money for the important help refugees charity so thanks to everyone who came along uh, that was on Tuesday so it was really nice to have something good uh, before I then went home, drank whiskey and watched everything go on fire. Um, the only other thing to say on this week's show is, for long-time listeners, uh, you may remember a few months back that I tried something on here called Partly Big Society. The aim was to find something small every week that you, the listener, yes, or one of you, could help with or do something minor and non-time-consuming to help protest about. Well, sadly, it never worked out uh, with only two or three of you ever taking part each week, which, you know, is cool. I know you all have shit to do. Uh, you aren't all spending your days procrastinating like me and playing the Make More game on your phone. It's so very addictive, though, and you can tap away and see what it's like to be an evil capitalist millionaire. I mean, I have to say, I wasn't into it, and then once you get to the stage where you can have robots, I can totally see the appeal. Anyway, look, I'm constantly frustrated by my own lack of being able to do things to help with the current climate of shit, and I wondered if it would be worth bringing the Partly Big Society section back. Would you be prepared to spend two minutes of your week doing a fun task if it could potentially help others or protest about something? Um, If you think so, do drop me a line at Bro on Twitter, the Bro Facebook group, or partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com and let me know. Oh, and please do keep spreading the word about this show, uh, unless you hate it. In which case, uh, my defence of freedom of speech means that really you can say what you like but just don't tell my mum yet it'll make her sad right and now for some things you may have missed the un committee on the rights of persons with disabilities has said that the conservative cuts to welfare are violating the rights of disabled people which feels a bit like they could have followed that up with a report on where bears like to shit but hey it's nice that someone official has said what every disabled person in the uk has known since 2010 The 22-page report says the portrayal of people with disabilities by the government as as lazy or a burden were hugely damaging, and they criticised cuts and caps to welfare. This preceded by just a few days the Supreme Court ruling against the government's bedroom tax in favour of two cases out of seven, saying that the costs of it discriminated against the claimant's rights to a family life. 
Sadly, five of the seven cases were ruled in favour of the government, including a victim of rape and domestic violence who had a panic room because that was a social need, not a medical one, but her needs could be met by applying for financial support from the local authority's discretionary housing payment scheme, which I'm sure is super easy to do, right? I mean, aside from the fact that it's totally in the local council's jurisdiction, has no appeal methods and funds are limited, but hey, I mean, if the government made getting one of those discretionary housing payment schemes easier to get than avoiding tax, then everyone would be doing it, right? Hmm. Anyway, the two cases plus the UN report are a double whammy in the Department of Work and Pensioners' faces, and what is really great is that they saw all that, and they responded by releasing the UN report details during the US election results so it would generally be ignored, and stated that the UN were too narrow in scope so they won't be following its recommendations any further. I mean, yeah, take that, UN, with your narrow wanting a watchdog to monitor the impacts of policies relating to disabled people's standards of living. Jesus, open your eyes. What will they want next? Systems in place to allow for equal rights for all people, or some nonsense? I mean, what year is this? 2009? UK house building is at its weakest level for four years, meaning that when the Conservatives keep referring to themselves as the party of home ownership, what they mean is they all have several each and there's none left for you. Construction sector output fell by 1.1% from July to September, which is fine because in those summer months no one wants to live indoors anyway, right? Builders reports say that Brexit uncertainty affected them and there is talk that the Chancellor Philip Hammond will cancel public sector investment cuts in his autumn statement that could help. However, what won't help are stricter immigration controls that will affect construction companies and high inflation. I mean, I would give my suggestions as to how you can increase house building by tackling those things, but I mean, it seems listening to constructive criticism has also fallen in the months of July to September. Oh, and in another attempt to move themselves up 2016's not-share list, the House of Lords have defeated the government's attempt to delete a really important clause in the Children and Social Work Bill that basically said if councils want to save money, they can just ignore kids' legal rights that have been created over decades and decades. Because, you know, children are only small, right? So no one would probably notice. Prime Minister Theresa May said in September that she wanted a country that works for everyone, but I guess children aren't allowed to work, so sod them if they want rights too. I mean, you know, children's rights. Where will it end? What next? Animal rights or something? The removal of the clause would have meant that vulnerable children would have had different rights depending on where they live, and while 245 voted against removing that clause, 213 voted for deleting it, so I wonder just how few rights kids would have had in Westminster, and why on earth that is. Innocent face. So this week, I thought it'd be useful to chat to someone in the US about how the election of a reality star and bigoted Satsuma has gone down with the people there. Because, I mean, if you were just to look at the response of politicians in the US, they seem to be playing the stay calm and carry on card, which is the sort of meme people only use if they really have absolutely nothing happening in their privileged lives, and then they feel devastated when they've run out of cocoa or the antiques roadshow isn't on. But as well as that, it's also a very dangerous way to normalise what has happened. Meanwhile, UK politicians such as Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson, who looks like the stuff you find in your jeans pocket after a wash but with a face. Boris has said that there's a lot to be positive about Trump's win, despite saying last September that the other quacking cartoon like Donald was clearly out of his mind. Boris said the last bit uh, about being out of his mind, I said the cartoon bit, and unlike Boris with his complete lack of conviction, I definitely say it again. With the UK now seeming to look to Nigel Farage for his connections with Trump, despite him being a man who constantly pointed the finger at immigrants for stealing jobs, but is now a Brit in the US hoping for employment, the election results clearly do matter to us in the UK as well. So this week's guest is comedian and podcast supremo Ben Kissel. 
I'm a big fan of Ben's US politics podcast, Abe Lincoln's Top Hat, which he hosts with Marcus Parks, and I have found it super useful listening over the last year in the lead up to the US election, and I'm sure I will continue to do so in the aftermath. Uh, this is due to Ben's really frank way of discussing American politics, and very funny way too, that has brought him and Marcus lots of listeners across the political spectrum in America. Ben is, and this is my description, not his, um, I think Ben is probably classed as a sort of leftish libertarian politics-wise, and I think his admittance of who he voted for in this interview might annoy a few of you. Don't worry, it is not Trump. Um, however, I do think that his opinions are incredibly interesting and informative, and yes, we are both very aware that as two white men discussing the outcome, neither of us will be most affected by anything that happens as a result. Um, but we chat about a lot of important stuff. Um, I did call Ben via his mobile, so sound quality isn't horrific, but at times also isn't the best. Uh, but I was very, very pleased that Ben took the time to chat with me, and I hope you enjoy. Here's Ben. Hi, Ben. Thanks tons for talking to me. Um, first question is, how are you? Are you all right? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny. Thank you so much for having me, by the way. Um, yeah, I am feeling I am feeling all right. Uh, you know, I think the people that really took uh, the election uh, extremely hard uh, when Donald Trump was was made our president were people that were specifically that were specifically targeted from his campaign. You know, specifically Muslim Americans. I watched um, I watched the results come in with my friend Dina John, who also has a show on Cape Comedy Radio called Brighter Side. Uh, check it out; he's great. And um, so, you know, and in a lot of and a lot of very hardcore Hillary Clinton supporters, um, they took it much much harder. You know, um, I mean, obviously, I took it hard. The uncertainty was is, is still there. But um, there is something to be said, and I think it's important, you know, as a, uh, you know, as a person who, you know, as, just a, as, a, as a white fella who wasn't really in the crosshairs of the Trump campaign, I take it hard, but my heart goes out to people who really feel as if this was a total and utter betrayal um, by the American people, you know, specifically Muslim Americans who were really in the crosshairs and made a wedge issue um, in, this, in this previous campaign. Sure. It, it sounds very similar to um, uh, the Brexit. And also, similarly, we are two white men having a chat, so uh, we're probably the least affected in, in both scenario. But uh, the Brexit vote, while um, we had this thing here that not everyone that voted Brexit was a racist, you know, the fact is they legitimised racism by supporting the campaigns that were quite racist. And is that the sort of... Uh, that sounds like it's a very similar issue in, in the States with Trump. Well, it's interesting because, of course, he does have that. Uh, there is some of the coalition that Donald Trump created was certainly that alt-right coalition of people who, you know, were openly anti-Semitic, who were openly racist. Um, you know, there is no um, denying that the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan, the oldest, one of the oldest white supremacy groups, um, in American history, that supported Donald Trump along with the candidate. Uh, who is running for Senate in Louisiana. He's sort of a ghost that continues to haunt our nation, a fellow named David Duke. Yeah. He also supported Donald Trump. So there is no denying that um, he did have support from uh, extremely vile racist individuals. But then he also tapped into, you know, people like my parents, for example, evangelical Christians who vote pro-life and pro-Israel. He was able to tap into the the evangelical base, which I was really surprised about because, of course, his verbiage was so um, aggressive and uh, his history is 
not whatsoever. Uh, you can't you can't say it was. Um, he didn't live by Christian values for no, no. his life, and I would argue that he doesn't live by those values today. So Tuesday, uh, November eighth, was interesting because I texted my mother, and I was just wondering, uh, you know, if the evangelicals were going to fall in line because I knew if they did, that would make uh, that would that would um, make it extremely difficult for Hillary Clinton because evangelicals tend to get what they want, and they vote um, in very uh, they have a solidified vote. And, uh, and they really don't stray from it. Um, they, you know, once once uh, the leaders of the evangelical movement in this country make a decision, the people tend to follow. So I texted my mother, and I just asked her, you know, who she voted for. And I was like, it's okay if it's Trump, whatever. And then that's what she said. She said, we're voted pro-life and pro-Israel. We don't love the messenger, but we voted for Trump. And um, and when, it, when my mother voted for him, I was like, oh, my God. I think he's reached... He has reached um, middle-class suburban America in a way that a lot of, specifically women, in a way that a lot of people didn't think he could. Yeah. And, I mean, is is part of that the... Because, I mean, uh, now, I don't know if these polls are still correct, but I re- uh, read part of it that was um, a large amount of voters said they only voted for their candidate because they disliked the other one so much. Um, and that's obviously... I think, yeah, this was, this was the... Um, this, I can't think of an election that epitomized the idea of voting for the lesser of two evils more than this election. Their disapproval ratings were always hovering just below 70%. They were always around 67 68% disapproval ratings. And I think in a change election, um, given the fact that they were equally hated, Trump was able to really take that message of change and, and ride with it. And people overlooked all of the um, hostile rhetoric on the campaign trail because um, they just they, they just did not see Hillary. Uh, Hillary was just not better than, uh, than the disgusting and terrible things that Donald Trump was saying in the, in the minds of the American people. Um, because of her history, you know, she was extremely, um, you know, she was, she was, uh, she, she was a she was a controversial choice for the Democrats because, of course, Bernie Sanders, he was, he was the, one with the one with the grassroots movement. Uh, the, the Sanders revolution was real, and he got so many millions and millions of Americans engaged in his revolution. And then when the Debbie Wasserman Schultz DNC, the head of the Democratic National Committee at the time, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, when the WikiLeaks came out, which is interesting, WikiLeaks' role in this election— when it came out that they had railroaded um, Bernie Sanders since day one, um, that really hurt Hillary Clinton's support right. amongst the grassroots Democrats because they just saw that the fix was in, and they really never got over it. Donald Trump, on the other hand, when he announced June sixteenth, two thousand fifteen, he was not he skyrocketed, you know, to around fifteen percent. But granted, there was about eighteen people in the race at that time. Maybe a little bit less. Uh, I think it capped out at eighteen, though. And uh, he never looked back. He always, he always had momentum going. He never lost his grassroots movement, uh, regardless if it was, you know, again, some individuals that you know uh, might not have had uh, the best intentions for the country. Um, but anger was the major emotion that led people to the polls in this election. And I think that the fact that Trump never lost his grassroots support. And Hillary, that fracture when she won the nomination, and Bernie, uh, his Bernie supporters 
were given very little of a consolation prize. I think she promised on the campaign trail to erase some student debt. And so they, she gave them uh, very little, just a couple of pebbles of what Bernie Sanders was talking about on the campaign trail to sort of, you know, get their, get their support. And then just assumed that they would turn out in droves for her because Donald Trump was considered such by her standards a deplorable candidate. But I actually think the Venn diagram of people who are so upset with the status quo and with the elites and with the wealthy elites, specifically in Bernie's rhetoric, I think there's a massive Venn diagram uh, of supporters that went from Bernie to Donald Trump. Wow. And a lot of Bernie Sanders supporters that either supported Jill Stein, maybe Gary Johnson, but they or they stayed home they, because they were so disappointed and hurt by Hillary Clinton's campaign and her complete lack of uh, extended an olive branch to try, to try to really get those grassroots Democratic supporters. And, and I mean, do you think, as, as again, there's been a, a lot of things I've seen articles about, would Bernie have had a chance at winning then, do you think? Or would it still have been... You know, it's funny because, yeah. you know, everyone's, uh, you know, perfect in hindsight. And now in, uh, in a uh, hypothetical world, everyone's like, Bernie totally would have destroyed Donald Trump and beat him. I do personally believe that that is true. Right. For me, um, I ended up voting for third party in this election because I just had to wash my hands of uh, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. I found them both to be just atrocious candidates. The only vote that I cast was for Bernie Sanders. Right. And I think, without a doubt, I would have voted for Bernie Sanders um, for the presidency. You know, And granted, I am not someone who is for big government. I actually disagree with... Um, some of the policies that Bernie Sanders was putting forth, but I, I did like his populism, and I think he had a good, positive message, and it, it would have really been a light in the darkness, specifically in comparison to the Trump campaign. I think that Hillary Clinton made a massive mistake with these emails by just allowing them to slowly drift throughout the campaign trail. So we had a week before the election, all of a sudden, because of the anti Wiener scandal that's happening in our nation, which yeah. is, I mean, comical, but also really devastating um, on a national level because it certainly hurt the Hillary Clinton campaign. Um, the, the FBI, James Comey being the head, the director of the FBI, said, uh, sent a very bizarre kind of vague message to Congress talking about how he's reopening the investigation of the Hillary Clinton email server scandal. This was a week before the election. And so we had these constant drips of emails, and the emails themselves were relatively—they um, were innocuous. They were there were not that. They were not that. There was no, no major bombshell in any of these emails. And you know, WikiLeaks was promising a massive bombshell that would guarantee Hillary loses the election. None of them really had that. It was just the slow drip. It was like um, Chinese water torture. Just slowly dripping, 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 penetrating the skin, and finally hitting the brain of the American people. And it just drove people insane, as opposed to what they should have done when she announced that she was running. They should have just done a massive email dump. People have very short memories because they're not really paying attention, and they forgive and they forget. Or if they don't forget, they do just forget. It would have just been a splash in the face, and it would have been shocking a year ago, but no one would care. And so I think it was able to, the email scandal was able to sort of 
to stop her from being the beacon of light that would have had to shatter the darkness of the Trump campaign. And uh, so I really think that Bernie Sanders would have beat Donald Trump because he would have been able to stand up with a much more positive, still populist, still a message for the working class, the middle class, who have been completely, um, uh, you know, by their standards. And I think, you know, they, they've been screwed over for the past 30 years. They've been getting screwed over in a lot of trade deals. Automation has been extremely hard on the middle class. Um, I mean, it's shrunk. It's smaller than it ever has been. And this nation does rely on a healthy middle class. Um, otherwise, uh, you know, there's just the, the discontent becomes too high and we can't sustain. So Bernie Sanders um, would have been able to continue on with the populist message, maintain a relationship with that middle class and not have just the unbelievable negativity that came with the Hillary Clinton campaign. And, and do you think... Uh, that's that's really that's really fascinating, and I, I wondered if there's also anything uh, to do with with the way in which uh, the voting works in the states that that caused the results. Because um, again, one of the the figures, and again, this is from the internet, so it might be incorrect. I should always prefix almost everything I say with that. Um, but you know, there's something like Wisconsin turned away about three hundred thousand voters because of incorrect voter ID, um, and I've heard about that in a few other states as well. Um, how how badly do you think that that sort of thing affects the outcome? I don't personally think that the, I mean, this is just our system. The Electoral College is how we do it. Uh, Donald Trump became the fifth president in U.S. history to win the presidency without winning the popular vote. Um, as far as voter fraud, I personally didn't see anything that was quite, um, certainly not on part of what, what happened uh, in the year 2000 with George W. Bush with Catherine Harris literally purged 94,000 votes off the book um, wow. because they accused the individuals of being felons. That was in the state of Florida, uh, which obviously was extremely important to the Al Gore campaign. It would have helped if he won in his home state of Tennessee. In Florida, wouldn't have necessarily had to matter so much. But nonetheless, uh, he was a flawed candidate in his own way. Or in 2000, and of course, you know, Jeb Bush was the governor of Florida at that time. Or what you saw in 2004 with Ohio and John Kerry when they went down and flipped the votes in Tennessee, uh, and then gave that state to George W. Bush. I do not personally, um, through just, you know, just the, the information that I've seen, I haven't seen anything that really shows a massive amount of voter fraud. I think this election was um, pretty fair by, you know, obviously there's always going to be some human uh, mistakes uh, made. But, but, I mean, as far as this is how we do it, um, Donald Trump won this election. As soon as he took Wisconsin, as soon as he got that Midwest firewall, that's what they call um, sort of the, the last bastion of hope, the, the, the place that Hillary was guaranteed to win. Um, uh, but then obviously things went the other direction. As soon as Trump got Wisconsin and started eroding her firewall of the Midwest, um, you know, that was just, I think that it was fair, but it was, it was, it was extremely shocking. So I don't, I mean, and I think at this point, you know, there's a lot of people protesting right now in New York City, and uh, there were some uh, protests in Baltimore and Los Angeles. There's a lot of protests right now. And, and, I, and my heart goes out to them because I totally understand um, how um, offensive the Trump campaign was to so many people, specifically um, immigrants, Latinos, uh, Muslim Americans. Um, I understand their anger, but I, I think this election was in a strange way, sadly fair, 
Um, and this is just people, people just, uh, you know, just did not find the hope in Hillary and they were willing to really risk quite a bit in, in Donald Trump. Sure. I mean, uh, to be fair, I think it was, was it 11,000 people voted for Harambe? So, I mean, there's definitely disillusionment in America if there's 11,000 people that think a dead gorilla would have been a better choice than any of the two candidates. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and you know what? Harambe might have been. <laughs> you know, like, in the Oval Office doing Harambe ghost activities. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, it's interesting because even the people that we thought for sure would come out in droves for Donald Trump, specifically Hispanics, uh, he got almost 30%. He got 29% of the Hispanic vote, yeah. 5% of the Hispanic female vote, um, which was really astonishing. And then going to continuing on with the votes um, and the percentages, he was able to get 53% of white women in America, which um, I think a lot of people were surprised about how high that number was. Um, and he was able to get, I mean, Hillary had 88% of black men, and uh, Trump was able to get 8%, which was a higher percentage. And then, of course, she maintained her support amongst black women with 94%. Um, but it, and she and Donald Trump won the suburbs with 50% and Hillary with 45%. Uh, and uh, so it was really fascinating, those results. And I do feel, um, I think it was a fair election, but I do feel bad for specifically young girls who look at Hillary Clinton as a potential first president. And now we have her getting so close to shattering the glass ceiling. And there is a chance she just ends up in jail. And what kind of message would that send if you know it's like, yeah. you can do anything. The first female to get to become the head of a national party ticket, to be on the head of the to be the head of the national party ticket ends up going to jail. Um, Terrific. It would, send, it would send a message that I think would be uninspiring and, uh, and quite frankly sad. But that's the Democratic Party's fault. They went, they, they just completely denied their grassroots and uh, they gave them no love or no respect as I was talking about previously regarding Bernie Sanders supporters. They just gave them nothing. And I think we've learned in this election cycle, grassroots politics matter and maybe they matter more than ever. Because of social media and things like that, sure. people are able to get together uh, that otherwise were not able to get together and uh, form new coalitions, which Donald Trump certainly has. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in fact, I will ask you about that in just a minute. I wanted to just uh, just to check in on the voter thing, though. I think I heard I think you were talking about it on your podcast. I think that's where I heard this from. But I think you were saying on or you said on one of your recent podcasts that the way in which the voting day happens, it, it kind of means that people on zero hour contracts or, you know, jobs that are hourly rate mean that they can't actually get the time off to go and vote. Um, and, I, and I wondered if, you know, uh, and obviously there's there's uh, anyone with a criminal record can't vote, uh, and which I think they said right. is something like one in five black people in Florida can't vote because of that. And I, I wondered if that, you know, uh, causes an effect every, every time there's an election yeah. as well. It absolutely does. And there is no denying that lower voter turnout is always going to benefit the Republican Party. Um, it, you know, the the felon felons not being able to vote in this country. I personally believe the black mark on this nation. Um, I think you know, after we we do not we we are obsessed with punishment in our country. Uh, we have 2.5 million people in prison right now. And there's a great documentary, as a matter of fact, on Netflix called Thirteenth all about the 13th Amendment, which obviously abolished slavery. But you could argue slavery is alive and well in this nation if you look at our prison industrial complex. I mean, um, it is free labor, and we 
people are over-sentenced on a regular basis. Uh, it is really insane. So selling, not being able to vote, making them second-class citizens, post where, where you're supposed to have, uh, post-prison, which is theoretically supposed to rehabilitate them. But again, we do not rehabilitate. We just punish, punish, punish. Um, I mean, things like solitary confinement. Thankfully, Barack Obama did do away with solitary confinement for uh, for juveniles in a, on a federal level, in federal prisons, which I think was a step in the right direction. But certainly, felons being purged from the voting blocks, uh, being being po- uh, being uh, purged from, uh, you know, being able to vote, it really does send a, um, a message that not everyone is equal in this country. And I think it's extremely negative. So I would like to, I would also, you know, going back to what you were talking about uh, regarding the voting day itself, we do have a lot of early votes that come in. We can do affidavit ballots or, um, or other types of ballots that you can send in early. Um, so it doesn't necessarily have to be day of. But sure. I would like to see it being a national holiday where everybody has it off. Um, I would like to see uh, maybe an extended, um, maybe extended. Uh, you know, I wouldn't mind a you know a, a full week of voting. Something like that could work. Um, uh, but I, I, I do think we have to do certain things to improve uh, voting in this country. I mean, it's extremely easy to vote for an American Idol. Uh, obviously, our you know our pop song. Our pop singing reality show. <laughs> yeah, it should be easy to vote for the presidency as well. Um, so I think you know we have to look at those sorts of issues and and try to you know figure out a good compromise. And then also you know it just comes down to people, specifically in this election, not getting bogged down by American politics and not getting bogged down by the hateful rhetoric. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I think a lot of people were just turned off by the juvenile slash mm. hostile slash extremely, um, it was a it was this this election was an insult to the intelligence of the American people. It was it, there was at no point was there policy talked about whatsoever. I think if Bernie was going against Trump, Bernie being 
a, pol- a policy individual, it would have been a higher, uh, the, the level of discourse would have been much higher. Um, it was just, it was, a, it was an election in the mud. And, uh, you know, as the old cliche about pigs, uh, you know, you, you can, uh, whatever. <laughs> Trump was very comfortable in the mud. And, and Hillary um, and her supporters were not. So she fought, she fought the battle um, on his home turf. Or home, uh, you know, home mud, I suppose, and uh, and I think that really hurt her. Yeah, and what what do you? I mean, sort of. It's interesting. You say it's easy to vote for American Idol, and now you have a reality TV star as your president. Um, you know, that I'm sure that has an effect. There's something in there uh, is linked. Um, but Trump now is president, uh, like it or not, I guess. Uh, what What are you, I mean, what next? What do you think he's actually going to do as president? He doesn't seem particularly keen. I think there was something today saying he's asking if he can spend only a few days in the White House and some in New York. And um, what, what do you think he's going to be like? You know, that's the thing with Donald Trump. And people just sort of put his faith in the message of, I can solve it, I'll take care of it. Um, and because he isn't tethered by any political philosophy or political ideology, if you listen to him, um, I was talking with my roommate about this last night. What he did when he first began running for the presidency was do a lot of town halls. And he asked a lot of questions. And if you go back and watch those early, those early town halls he was doing, those early speeches, he was extremely engaged which, uh, with, the, with, with the constituents, the constituents now. He was extremely engaged with the audience. And um, I think what he was able to do, because he is an emotionally, surprisingly emotionally intelligent person, um, he was able to feel what the people wanted, and then he just gave it right back to them. He is a mirror of America, and he certainly is a, um, a reflection of some of our darker sides, a reflection of our anger, a reflection of our desperation. He doesn't reflect, you know, um, the, uh, the endless ideals of freedom and liberty and tolerance um, that other presidential candidates, such as Barack Obama, did in 2008. Um, but he is nonetheless a reflection of the American people. And so I think what he was doing uh, as he was campaigning and running was cherry-picking things that were working for other political candidates either throughout history or during the campaign uh, in real time. I mean, of course, Make America Great Again was Ronald Reagan's quote mm. from 1980. So that was let's make America great again. So he just picks that. He's like Ronald Reagan was a very successful president. Make America great again. Boom. I'm taking that. And then he ends up stealing a lot of Bernie's rhetoric, specifically when it, when he came against uh, the trade deals of NAFTA, um, TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, so he does sort of have this bizarre um, populism, nationalism, and an economic uh, an economic message. That really resonated with people. So that side, the economic message, um, I don't necessarily get so uh, terrified about. But the, so if he gets into office and he just exercises those sorts, if he sticks with that, you know, that side of his uh, of his campaign and the political thoughts that we were throwing out there, I don't, I don't think that'll be horrible. The, the the part that gets me a little bit concerned is the social conservatism of uh, his running mate, Mike Pence. I think Mike Pence will have a very important role in his, uh, in his cabinet, or in his administration, rather. His cabinet, by the way, might have Sarah Palin in it. Uh, yeah. Continue with the reality show theme of his uh, future administration. Um, but, you know, Mike Pence, and especially someone like 
uh, Donald Trump, who I think has something to prove to the evangelical community and really has a lot. He has them to thank uh, for putting him in office. A lot, uh, you know, uh, a lot of the gratitude has to go towards the evangelical community. So as Donald Trump is personally, I do not believe, extremely socially conservative. I mean, he's an adulterer. He is uh, pro-choice until a few years ago. Uh, certainly he's a New York liberal by many, many, many metrics, by many standards. I wonder if he overcompensates, gives the evangelical face, the, the, you know, he throws them the red meat uh, that they so crave, and Mike Pence sort of takes the lead on that. Of course, Mike Pence, the former, uh, not former, uh, or maybe still current governor of Indiana, I'm not sure when he has to stop that, so I'll right. that soon here. Um, but he, he um, redistributed uh, HIV funds, um, and he put those towards um, a, uh, oh my goodness, I'm forgetting the name of it now. Uh, it's when uh, he tried to change gay people into straight people. What's the name of that? Version therapy. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Therapy, which is really, I mean, if you ever saw the movie Clockwork Orange, yeah. it, is, it is Clockwork Orange-esque what they do to these poor uh, kids who, you know, just want to, you know, fit in, in in Indiana or Wisconsin or whatever, uh, you know, small state, rural, rural part of a small state they're from. And he is pro-conversion therapy, which I think is extremely uh, dangerous. And, and uh, I, don't, I just don't know what kind of person could support such such policies, and specifically to take funding away from it. HIV um, research and uh, and uh, and institutions trying to help individuals that that are suffering from HIV um, and then put it towards conversion therapy. I just really thought that was such a such a slap in the face to so many people. Um, so that's what concerns me about the Trump administration. Or you know, of course, the Muslim ban, which is it's a, it's a physical impossibility. And you know, the funny thing is, he just speaks about these things without nuance. Um, and he's just, he, he, he doesn't understand, and hopefully he gets to understand that his words really carry a lot of weight with them now. Sure. And he is speaking for the entire American people. We already kind of have a Muslim ban in some way. We have extremely hard, it's extremely difficult to come from certain countries in the Middle East that are, uh, you know, predominantly Muslim. It's extremely difficult for individuals from Iran, for example, uh, you know, Syria, for them to come here. Um, but you don't, you don't call it a Muslim ban. You don't put you don't put the religious test to it. And so I really just wonder if he's going to go far on the social conservatism, uh, so far to the right to thank the evangelicals and a lot of the alt right individuals that put him in office, or if he can focus on his economic message and really try to um, extend an olive branch to the people that are so terrified of his presidency. Um, you know, because he also, one good thing about Donald Trump, uh, he really did reach out to the LGBTQ community uh, himself. Right. Uh, during his, if you remember his RNC acceptance speech, uh, he mentioned LGBT. That's what was written on the teleprompter. He added the Q himself. That's how woke he was. I believe that's what people are saying. Right. Um, so it's interesting because, again, he is a New York liberal who does not, gay conversion therapy I mean, this is somebody, as I predicted on uh, Fox News, uh, that would welcome Caitlyn Jenner uh, into his home and into uh, whatever bathroom she wants to use. 
um, in Trump Towers, as he said during the campaign. So I, I just don't know what Donald Trump is going to show up in office. If it's going to be that populist um, economic Trump, or if he's going to go so far to the evangelical social conservative right. And I think that's really what has a lot of people uncomfortable. And we'll be back with Ben in a minute. But first, just in case you're still feeling stressed, here's a happy jingle to cheer you up. Hey there, no need to stress. We're all trapped in this dystopian mess. Hey there, no need to cry. It's only so long before global warming kills the sky. Virgin Care has just won a £700 million contract to run more than 200 NHS services in Bath and North East Somerset. I mean, I say one, but I doubt Richard Branson had to answer a multiple choice question with a tiebreaker on how I think the NHS should best be privatised in under 50 characters or less. Virgin Care has been awarded over £1 billion of NHS contracts in the last five years, and some of you may be thinking, well, cool, the National Health Service is struggling. Why not let a successful businessman like shaved orangutan Richard Branson run health and social care services? I mean, I'm sure he'll do a great job. Look at his successful ventures with Virgin Cola. Oh, oh dear. Or Virgin Megastore. Oh, oh dear. Or his brilliant work making transport affordable and user-friendly with Virgin Trains. So a little bit about Virgin Care firstly. Uh, They are obviously one of Branson's many cash cows, although compared to the rest of his businesses, they are far more of a tiny cash burger. Buying out a majority stake, get it? See that stake with with the cap? Sorry. Buying out a majority stake of Assura Medical in 2010, Virgin Care has two parts to its uh, burger, with primary care services and community-based NHS ones. And since 2010, it has never, ever made a profit. Ever. Yeah, even with contracts for things like primary care at three prisons in the UK worth over £58.1 million. This is because Virgin Care loses £9 to £10 million in a financial year and therefore makes no profit and therefore pays no tax and therefore drains more money that could go to the NHS, therefore in a roundabout way, meaning that the NHS needs more investment in it, therefore opening out further bits of it to be awarded to Virgin Care for massive million pound contracts instead. That shaved orangutan is pretty sneaky, huh? Well, I mean, especially when you consider that the nine to 10 million pound loss that it makes each year is because Virgin Care owes money to a holding company. And who owns that holding company? That's right, it's the Richie Branson again. And Virgin Care only have to repay the money that they owe when they start to record a profit. But because they owe money to another Virgin business, which in turn owes money to another and another, and all in all 13 Branson magic money trees, unlucky not for him, and they are all owned by a parent company in the tax haven, the Virgin Islands, and then they can each avoid paying tax because they're always owing themselves money. Does that make sense? No? Well, sum it up like this, it's all shadier than Richard Branson with a parasol under a palm tree on his own island laughing maniacally because he's earning money off people being sick or having a shit train journey. Now, on top of this, Virgin Care's track record of, well, care isn't particularly great. Uh, There is one case study of a woman dying from multiple organ failure and sepsis at the Virgin Care Centre in Croydon because she was given triage by a receptionist who has no medical training as she deemed her not seriously ill enough to see a doctor. I mean, sure, I guess it must be more exciting than giving someone a tube to wee in while saying out loud the STI that they've come in for so the whole waiting room can hear, but really, no one wants someone trained in appointments to also be in charge of ointments. Yes, that is the best I can do with that. Deal with it. 
It seemed that receptionists at this Croydon hotel were deciding who got to see a doctor or not, probably based on who said please when they arrived, I reckon, all of which was just to save money. Virgin say that they have now addressed this, but when a healthcare company's main priority is money saving and not your health, you do wonder what will get cut next, as it will probably be the medical tape for you by a person who empties the bins. It's also why Virgin Care cherry pick, Virgin pun not intended, for the most profitable NHS treatments. This is partly because the private healthcare centres don't have the same facilities as big hospitals, but mostly it's because that, that means that money that should go to NHS trusts is instead diverted to the private healthcare companies while they only deal with half the patients and the NHS has to deal with more expensive long-term cases, throwing them into yes further debt. So when Virgin Care advertised their services as more than 250 free NHS and social care services with a difference, the difference is that their services are more worried about their bank operations. So currently, Virgin Care say they run over 250 NHS and social care services for the NHS, including GP surgeries, healthcare centres, out-of-hours care, community services and GP-led walk-ins as well. But this latest contract is their biggest yet at £700 million, and it is the first time that they will be in charge of main adult social work services, which is pretty worrying considering their track record so far, which ultimately seems very much like Virgin Care are so cool, because other than themselves, they've never looked after anyone properly before. And now, back to Ben. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing a large part de- sort of depends on who he's got uh, in office with him because I, I know there was talk um, this weekend of, of Newt Gingrich uh, being possibly Secretary of State and, and talking about getting the oh non-US Affairs Committee back for, for uh, to look at Muslim groups. And then, of course, there's, there's Stephen Bannon, isn't there, the sort of head of Breibart that he's, he's planning on yeah. keeping involved in. I guess that's so. It's less the fear of what Donald will do, but more what his advisors or the people around him do and persuade him to do. Yeah, you know what that is the thing. He's also going to bring in Rudy Giuliani, um, you know, who was uh, a controversial mayor of New York City, a competent mayor by a lot of measure, uh, by a lot of people's thoughts. But um, you know, he is surrounding himself with fascinating characters, specifically, like you mentioned, Steve Bannon, the. Um, uh, the head of Breitbart before he went over to work with the Trump campaign. It's fascinating because this really does um, legitimize their form of journalism and their form of da- uh, data gathering because all the polling, uh, Kellyanne Conway was another big winner for the Trump campaign. She was the Trump campaign senior. Uh, she managed the entire thing. Uh, she was the campaign manager. This was her first campaign ever, and she's going to go down as one of the greatest campaign managers in history because wow. of the because of this election, because also it was such a huge upset. But she had, and Steve Bannon, uh, their polling was showing that Donald Trump was close in Wisconsin. He was close in Michigan. He was close in Minnesota. So when he started campaigning uh, in those states so close to the election, national media, you know, the CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, uh, those, uh, you know, those entities, they were like, what's he doing? They made it look as if he was you know, just completely out of touch. He was sporadic with his campaigning. But it turns out, the internal polling that they were getting made them believe they had a shot to win, and they were correct. So it really did revolutionize polling and sadly legitimize um, uh, journalism uh, like Breitbart, journalists like, uh, you know, that appear on Breitbart's, um, you know, webpage and things like that. Um, So it was more like Steve Bannon uh, I, I don't know. I mean, what his brand of conservative politics is, uh, it can be extremely hostile and 
it, yeah. it definitely does not um, lead me to believe that they're going to try to get as wide of a tent as possible. I mean, it's interesting because this entire time, I sort of saw Trump as tripling down on his base. I never saw him expanding the tent. Um, and it turns out, with voter turnout being what it is, um, it turns out that's what he had to do. He just had to solidify that base. And going back to what we were talking about earlier regarding grassroots, he just kept on getting those roots growing deeper and deeper and deeper into the soil. And that's why his tree never fell. Hillary Clinton, they, once they, once they, um, you know, once they, once they cut the, cut the roots of the Bernie Sanders campaign, that tree was just, you know, just, just barely standing and it took a simple brief to knock it over. So, um, you know, I, so I don't know. I mean, Steve Bannon type politics, specifically the ones you see on Breitbart, if those, uh, those are in the White House now, and we're going to see how that actually translates to policy. That sounds terrifying. Sounds really scary. <laughs> um, it's, I mean, I think as well, do you think this, uh, just go back to the election, do you think this has changed how things may happen in 2020? Do you think there's more of a chance for third parties now? Do you think the Democrats you and know, Republicans are going to change? Or? You know, I, I, and I do, I, I, I support Gary Johnson, like I said, and he got 3% and I was so proud of him for that. Uh, you know, his campaign had some bumps in the road. There's no denying that. Um, as far as the third party, I do believe this nation needs one. Um, I think people are so, they're looking for uh, another option. That's what's so fascinating about Trump and his rise. He did run an insurgent campaign from within a national political party um, and was able to win. I mean, if you go back and watch him when he started campaigning and, and on the debate stage, he was he was talking more like a Democrat, demonizing the Bush family for all of the atrocious uh, foreign policies from their past, uh, and you know the the, the taxes, uh, the tax breaks for the wealthy, all those sorts of things. Um, so Trump, to some degree, is a representation of how the people wanted a third party option. It just so happened to come from within the Republican Party. Sure. Uh, when it comes to 2020, the thing that really does make me a little sad. I mean, many of these upset is this is a massive blow to your there's a there's a senator out of nebraska named ben sass and then of course we have uh my wisconsin boy paul ryan he was now the speaker of the house right uh both republicans their brand of republicanism has really taken a blow they're much more rational extremely uh policy driven and more uh tethered to conservative principles uh than someone like donald trump so I think for 2020, the Republican Party, I mean, obviously they'll have an incumbent in the White House unless Donald Trump is impeached, in which case they would still have Mike Pence in there running. Um, but it really does uh, strike a blow to rational Republicans. On the left side, um, I, I, they, they, it cannot be stressed enough. The DNC, uh, they need to embrace the grassroots. They need to realize that they cannot be a party uh, a centrist party. They need to do exactly what Trump did and go out and uh, talk to the people again. Uh, you know, I think the Hillary campaign relied so heavily on celebrity endorsements, specifically coming from, you know, uh, her final day with Beyonce and Jay-Z. Yep. Lady Gaga was giving a speech, and of course, Lena Dunham uh, was out there doing everything she could do to hurt Hillary's campaign, uh, ironically enough. Um, I think that they realized that 
you know, it is a celebrity driven culture, but at the end of the day, um, people are going to vote the way they want to. And you need to, you need to connect with the people. And that's exactly what Donald Trump did. So it'll be interesting to see where the Democratic Party goes. I think somebody like Elizabeth Warren could be a big star. Uh, you know, Cory Booker uh, could do fairly well as well. He's out of uh, New Jersey. He's the senator out of New Jersey. Um, but that's what they need to do. So I think it is the rational sort of mainstream Republican, Ben Sass, Paul Ryan's of the world who were really Ben Sass specifically was a never Trumper. Paul Ryan sort of played this bizarre, you know, elephant on a tightrope kind of game. Um, they, they really got hurt. And then on the left, uh, the establishment Democrats really got hurt. And I think they learned a very tough lesson. And you got to listen to the people. Um, otherwise, you know, a shocker like Donald Trump, uh, Donald Trump can be president. Sure. Yeah, um, I, I, I've got uh, just one or well, two very, one very quick last question and one, one question before that. I'm aware that I'm taking up more of your time than I said. Are you all right for two more questions? Oh, I don't care. Yeah, I can uh, talk forever. Okay, cool. All right. Well, I, I've just one more proper one, then I've got a very quick one at the end. Um, I was simply going to ask, uh, you know, I, I think uh, from fr- from Britain, we've always seen uh, Obama as quite. Um, you know, he's he's come across as a very kind of uh, confident and and stately president. Uh, I wondered, uh, as someone from America, are you gonna are you gonna miss him? Or well, I'll tell you one thing: if Barack Obama was able, it did what Michael Bloomberg did here in New York City when he was mayor and gave himself a third term. If Barack Obama was just like, sorry guys, I'm staying, not moving, this country would be totally fine with it. I believe he would have won. His approval ratings are at 55% right now, roughly. Um, and it was because, again, the election was so hostile and so unnerving to so many people that they did look at Barack Obama and really began to enjoy his, you know, his, his, uh, he's, he's a steady leader. Now, some of the things that he uh, did uh, did negatively affect, um, you know, middle class Americans, uh, specifically small business owners and things like that. But, Yes, I think uh, the one, you know, and at times President Barack Obama was a little bit too professorial and he wasn't, uh, you know, he had a difficult time emoting. You know, he was not ragged at his ability to really express emotion um, after some na- uh, certain national tragedies, specifically all the gun violence mm-hmm. that we have in this country. Granted, it seemed like every day he would have to give a speech uh, to the American people if he wanted to give a speech every time a mass amount of gun violence occurred in our country. Um, but yeah, I think um, this nation, Barack Obama will go down as a very loved president. And I think his administration these past eight years, obviously, you know, with some problems, such as, you know, uh, going back to what I was just talking about with the Democrats and needing to get back to the grassroots. Sure. Uh, as of yesterday, Barack Obama just approved of a pipeline going through South Dakota. Right. It was extremely important to uh, the grassroots of the Democratic Party. To not get this pipeline built, um, it was going over Native American property, and it you know people uh, really they want we want uh, different energy policies in this country. Um, I personally am not necessarily against the pipeline, um, but that's a whole other story. Uh, Barack Obama, when he when he approved that uh, yesterday, I think that was another slap in the face to the grassroots side of the Democratic Party, and. Um, you know, so yes, I do think he's going to be missed. I think these next four years are going to be much, much different 
than the past eight years. Um, and hopefully uh, Donald Trump isn't, doesn't get us into World War III via Twitter, um, <laughs> which, is, uh, which is a concern, a sad concern that we have to have under a President Trump. You know, it's funny, a lot of people have been equating Donald Trump's social media presence to what FDR did with the fireside chat, I mean, utilizing radio in a way that was right. never used before, or what John F. Kennedy was able to do with television. Um, it's just, you know, he's the president in your pocket, as I've said many times on Abe Lincoln's pop uh, it, it, not. It doesn't quite have the same uh, gravitas or class as a fireside chat, but his tweets and retweeting people and tweeting at people, I think that kind of connection was really beneficial, regardless of what of what those 140 characters said. I think people just were happy that they said anything if he uh, directed them at that, you know, directed uh, it at them. So um, we'll see what the communication looks like from the White House uh, to the people, because you know Donald Trump also has a very hostile relationship with the media. So um, will it be the most transparent? Uh, candidacy or the uh, you know presidency. I don't know. I also don't know if he has the ability not to be transparent because sure. because you know he is he is a uh, he he has a desperate need to constantly be uh, spoken about and to be the center of attention. And I think that could lead him to you know constantly be uh, engaged with the American people via these social media outlets. So I mean, it, it, yeah. But to your question. Because I ramble on and on, <laughs> I, I do believe people will miss uh, Barack Obama and will miss his, uh, you know, his steadiness. Sure, and I, I was going to say in the in the uh, the Trump tweeting thing, I, I believe the U.S. president isn't allowed an iPhone, so he's going to have to have a, try and tweet from a BlackBerry. That's not going to be easy. Uh, it might make things harder for him, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> yes, and as of as of January twentieth, two thousand seventeen, at POTUS will be Donald Trump. Uh. Um, so. Uh, he will be he will be tweeting as our president, and I, I, my God, I mean, we're guaranteed to see some interesting things coming out of that Twitter feed. That's for sure. I, you know, I I don't know. I mean, part of me is trying to be like, isn't that interesting? Our president can be, can really get the message out so easily to everybody, and we can engage with him and stuff like that. But at the same time, I, I just don't. I, I do get concerned. He tweets at Angela Merkel. And next thing you know, we're going to war with Germany because he mentioned uh, something about uh, you know her cleavage. Frighteningly possible. Frighteningly possible. Um, well, thank you tons for your time. I, just very last question. Um, I, I, as I've said to you before, I'm a big fan of your, your podcast, Abe Lincoln's Top Hat, uh, one of your many podcasts. Um, apart from your uh, podcast, where else could you recommend that, that British people check out to find sort of actual news uh, on, on what's going on? Uh, have you got any favourite sites or oh, podcasts? Man. You know, I get that question all the time because people are looking for non-biased, news sites on a regular basis. Uh, you know, for politics, Politico is fairly good because it's, it's just basically statistics and sort of answers the questions of why uh, these sorts of, you know, why um, outcomes occur. Um, otherwise, you know, I just try to look at as much as possible. And everything obviously has to get channeled through, you know, your own individual mind and the biases and all the, all the strange things that we have and our life experiences. It goes through all of that. And you end up, you know, through the prism of your life, and you, you you end up with your own conclusion. I really just tell people to consume as much as possible, and then use your better judgment and try to figure out, you know, what side is correct. 
or, you know, trying to figure out um, how, what, what's correct about both sides of an argument. You know, because the one great thing is we do have, uh, there's more information in the world than ever before, which is so ironic because the slow decline of intelligence is obvious. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, if you go back, they, they, uh, the State of the Union, for example, that's an address that the president gives once a year to the, uh, to the Congress and to the American people. Um, they used to be at, you know, roughly a senior and high school level, and then they went down to like a seventh grade level. And now with Donald Trump, it will be truly spoken at around the third grade level. Um, so third graders will be un- uh, able to understand what the president is saying, which is fine in theory, except for, you know, we're supposed to be adults. Um, so, uh, yes, anyway, um, uh, I forget your question now, but it's going to be uh, interesting. Sure. If you're hearing me for the first time, yeah, check out Abe Lincoln's Top Hat on Cape Comedy Radio, last podcast on the left. Uh, the Roundtable of Gentlemen. I have another one called The Ben Kissel Show, but I've been so busy, I really haven't been able to update it that much. So I think you would be interested in those shows. And uh, yeah, and tweet at me, and we'll keep the conversation going, because these next four years, I think, are going to really rely on rational minds to sort of try to figure out what's going on and, and figure out how we can do better in 2020 and, and, and going forward, because we really have to stop this slow decline of anti-intellectualism. Uh, and, you know, it's happening on both sides because what's happened in our universities um, has really become tragic with, with a different form of social conservatism, which is this, this hardcore uh, political correctness, liberal thinking that's happening in a lot of college campuses. And we're just not, you know, educating kids uh, to be rational and look at both sides. And that is one thing that Donald Trump was able to do with, again, like I said earlier, cherry-pick from both sides and sort of come up with this bizarre cobbled coalition of political ideas, and that led to a bizarre cobbled coalition of uh, human beings uh, that voted for him. So I think we have to just, you know, get some intellectualism back in this country. And it's funny because I was talking to Marcus Parks, who I co-host, able to get contact with. We had become the voice of reason, and we were like, that, that, that's not a good thing. <laughs> so, um, you know, we were, uh, you know, class clowns to say the least, and... Uh, so for us to have to take that mantle on, I think the society has really changed um, for the worse in a lot of ways. But we can do better, and I think everyone will do better. Um, you know, once we once we get through these four years and, and real, and you know, just kind of take a look in the mirror and realize that we can't be that shallow. We can't be as shallow as we are as a specifically as an American people. I mean, our media content is it's it's so atrocious, and it's just led the uh, the door was wide open for somebody like a Donald Trump because of the culture that has been created by both the left and the right. Big thanks to Ben for chatting with me. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at Ben Kissel. That's uh, B-E-N, obviously, K-I-S-S-E-L, one L. And as he says, he has many, many podcasts you can check out, including Abe Lincoln's Top Hat, the last podcast on the left, The Roundtable of Gentlemen, and his own The Ben Kissel Show. Uh, Ben also occasionally does Red Eye, uh, which is a roundtable discussion on Fox News, which I thought I'd tell you afterwards rather than before our chat so you wouldn't prejudge. But I guess you'll now realise that he is probably the voice of reason on all of those shows. Uh, As things unfold, I hope to get other US political commentators on the show. Uh, And as always, if you have anyone you'd like me to interview or a subject you'd like me to interview someone on, do drop me a line at Parpolbro on Twitter, Parpolbro on Facebook or partlypoliticalbroadcast at (laughs) gmail.com. This week, due to the US election results, I asked the stupid question of which reality TV star do you think would make a terrible politician? 
And this, of course, was a stupid question, with many of you on Twitter and Facebook replying, all of them, or pointing out that some terrible politicians have already been reality TV stars, like Catman George Galloway, or the man who was mocked for not being able to balance the Treasury's books before we realised he can't even balance his dance partner, Ed Balls. And one of you pointed out to me that reality TV star Big Brother's Glyn Wise actually went for election as Cardiff's Assembly Minister, getting just 7.5% of the vote. So, possibly quite a stupid question, considering that we already seem to be there in the world. But anyway, here's a few good ones from you lot. Sarah E. Airy said obvious choice would be Lord Sugar, uh, same sort of reasons as Trump, you know, without the bigotry, racism and sexism. Uh, but mainly, it's just that he's not that great a businessman. Sounds perfect. Uh, Lee Morgan and uh, Lee Morgan and Fluff Logic both recommended Joey Essex for Prime Minister. Um, Fluff Logic particularly said anyone who was ever on Towie, uh, generally not a joke. I'm very scared Joey Essex might try and run somewhere. And at Ford again said, is there a place for David Dickinson in the Orange Party? Now. Those are all very great, well done everyone, but I thought I'd end this by uh, reading out what Paul Jenkins wrote on our Facebook group and the ensuing terrifying comments. Uh, Paul Jenkins put uh, that he thought we should make it mandatory as part of our political process that you have to have served time on a reality show to be able to stand at all for any seat. We could start with a small parish council and put the judges from Strictly Bake Off, X Factor and The Voice in a cold church all once every Thursday to see how much of a cock-up of the local area they make in 10 short weeks. The most successful at wrecking things goes on to be elected as a local MP. It also packages itself up nicely as a new show, so is very, very cheap telly. Which I thought was a very, very good idea until Willard Foxton pointed out to me that Australian television already have something very similar uh, called Shitsville Express in 2013, where people actually, uh, budding politicians, uh, worked on some of the Australia's thorniest issues, as the Wikipedia says, and then put them to a former Prime Minister to see which ones could happen. Yes, that is exactly where we are in the world. It's already happened. And I guess in a way, it can't really be worse than what we already have, can it? If reality TV stars became politicians and vice versa. I mean, at least people might actually vote if they could do it by phone from their own sofas on a Saturday night. Although I suppose chances are those people would go for the shittest or funniest ones rather than the best. I just, I can't imagine that ever happening, can you? Imagine how dystopian and weird that future would be. <laughs> And that is all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast. Uh, thanks again for listening, and please do let everyone you know know about the show. Do give us a review on iTunes, and please drop us a quid or two at the Patreon if you can afford to as well. It's all very hugely appreciated. Uh, this will be back next week, unless by that point Donald Trump has been given the nuclear codes, in which case I'll be in my secret bunker. Where is it? Ha! Nice try, sucker. But there's only enough space for me, which, now thinking about it, sounds quite lonely and miserable. I mean, to be fair, I might actually just take my chances with staying outside and getting Hulk powers instead. I mean, at least by becoming an overly angry, violent bulk with basic language skills, I might finally be happy with the US election results. This week's show was brought to you by... Hey there, there's no need to scream, even though decency is swimming upstream. It's only time before everything's solved, when in millions of years another better species might evolve. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 